Welcome to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on your local community radio station. We are the longest-running environmental news hour, and I am David Franklin Irwin Hostetter. I'm Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter. And I am Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour. Glad to be back, and thanks so much for joining us, folks. Thank you. And Stefan is going to give us some opinions about the friggin' Ontario elections that just occurred. Mr. Doug Ford gets a majority. Uh, we're going to do climate, international climate news. And then Stefan will be interviewing Mr. Stephen Thomas, Senior Energy Policy Analyst. Climate Solutions Policy Analyst. Uh, for the David Suzuki Foundation. Yeah, he co-authored a paper called Shifting Power, Zero Emissions Electricity Across Canada by 2035. And that that's the focus, focus of your discussion. Yes. You're diving into it. We're diving into it. It's like a liquid basin. It's like a pool. A pool. Yeah. How deep? Pretty deep. Extremely deep. We spend a good time talking about it. Like, we, we go, we dive real deep. You dive right into that. Yeah. You just dive in. <clears throat> well, that's good to know. So, Stefan... The election. Yeah, I mean... Voter turnout, am I right? Yeah, I mean, this only briefly touches actually on the Ontario election because I think the words, it's bad, is really all you need. Four more years. And honestly, if you want to dive deeper into the ways in which it went sideways, there are many people who are more... uh, or better positioned to do that than I. But because we made such a pointed ask for people to vote beforehand, I do want to (laughs) um, think about a little bit about about the ways in which uh, voting and the ways in which voting is not the only way to exert power within a democracy and the ways in which uh, we now as uh, people who exist in this world now need to start thinking more deeply about this. Get it. Because first, you know, it should be noted that first, fewer people voted for Doug Ford in this election then people voted for the NDP in 2018. And and because it's low voter turnout, basically about 16% of, un, of eligible voters voted for the conservative majority, which now has 100% of the power. So we have 16% of people who voted for a party, which now has 100% of the power, which, as many people are saying around uh, the Twitter sphere and, on, and on, in articles, really highlights the need for, for, for proportional representation and voting reform to allow us to elect governments that represent the will of the people, or at least the will of the voting people, and not this weird structure designed to create quote-unquote majorities because that was what was decided was important at the time and really is not going well. However, that's we do that we have there are a few examples of the limits of the kind of vote harder mandate that have come through in the last few weeks that I do want to highlight. And the first is in New York, where an overwhelmingly democratic legislature failed to cl- pass their primary climate bill uh, as it was derailed by an alliance of fossil fuel and solar industries. Yes, private solar industries teamed with the fossil fuel industry to kill this climate bill. And Despite having 83 people on record saying they'd support the bill and only needing 76 votes to pass, the assembly speaker refused to bring it to a vote, and they won't be returning for the rest of the year. It is June, and they have decided they are done for the year. Thanks, America. 
I guess. I mean, I guess you're voting in November, so maybe that's why. But it's six months away, and this was a really important climate bill, and you had all of the votes, and you decided not to do that. And then, even if you, even if a state, uh, not just talking here about a state within the United States, but like a state as in a nation state, successfully passed legislation, we're seeing a sharp increase in fossil of fossil fuel investors who are going to private international tribunals looking for compensation for climate policies that they believe are, quote, illegally cutting into their profits. These tribunals are called investor state dispute settlements and are increasingly becoming places where countries are having to pay attention and make sure that they are not going to get sued when they pass climate legislation. And so we cannot just rely on voting harder Despite the fact that obviously in the last election here, even just some decent, even a mild ability to draw out the vote from either of the two parties would have gone a long way, which we did not get. We have to understand there are deeper problems at stake. And so those of us who want a, you know, ha who have a progressive vision for the future have to find other ways to build power uh, outside of electoral spaces. What, what's investor state dispute settlements? Um has the potential to be a really, really big blockade in coming years as nations do finally start to roll out some increasingly ambitious climate policy. How intimately, how intricately do you understand the uh, New York legislative, legislative process? The, the legislators had uh, compiled the votes for this climate bill, right? Yes. And the person whose job it was to officially bring the bill to a vote decided not to exactly because industry representatives from the solar and and oil industry just told them that they didn't want it to happen was what you're there were you know some amendments that were made late that they were sort of using as a reason why they might not be able to do it it might not necessarily have the votes but 83 people had said they'd vote for it previously and it really feels like kind of like hand wavy from the more centrist Democrats who didn't want to make the corporate overlords unhappy about this really you know like because this this bill was more designed for sort of state and uh you know came out of the union movement and so wasn't as corporate friendly as you might say the Deloitte Center for Sustainable Progress has put out a report saying that continuing as we have been on failing to deal with climate change will lead to a loss of $178 trillion globally by 2070. But taking it seriously and collaboratively could see global gains of $43 trillion over the same period. Now, they're using the language of net zero. If everybody, if everybody comes together for that net zero goal, we'll get a $43 trillion increase in the global economy. All right. And the G7 has announced that it is aiming for, quote unquote, predominantly carbon-free energy grids by 2035. Soren Amalong writes for Clean Energy Wire, quote, the G7 has committed to making their electricity systems predominantly carbon-free by 2035, but stopped short of setting a concrete date for exiting coal. 
Following their meeting in Berlin, the G7 Environment, Climate, and Energy Ministers said only that they would support, quote, an accelerated global unabated coal phase-out. Analysts said that the announcement to decarbonize power sectors was a big step ahead in the fight against climate change, but added that the to-do list for the G7 summit of heads of state and government next month in Bavaria remains long, given that there was also little progress on climate financing and other issues. You know, this is certainly good news. However, now is really where the rubber hits the road. You know, it's one thing for Canada to say that it's going to reduce its emissions from the energy sector. But as we've noted on this show in the past, the federal government is going to have to do a lot more than it is now if they're going to hit their targets while the Ontario government is in line to increase its electricity emissions from the sector significantly. And this problem isn't exclusively Canadian either. You know, the United States' inability to pass the Build Back Better plan is going to create similar, similar difficulties for them. Though, as a quick aside, uh, regular listeners may remember me talking about how the U.S. Chamber of Commerce had all but ground the American solar industry to a halt due to its investigation into tariffs. And there is some good, if odd, news on that front which is that the Biden administration is using the Defense Production Act to remove those tariffs and others connected to things that would reduce greenhouse gas emissions, like heat pumps and transformers for, for the electrical grid. And this is great news. But the fact that the sitting president with control over the Senate and Congress has to use a defense act in order to move things forward is certainly a bit of an indictment of the whole system. I think you're exactly right. And that harkens back to how like undemocratic our democratic systems have become in recent years. And, and I guess I say only it was only interesting because I was hearing these comments from folks who are older than myself and who I would consider to be like my superiors and who I would therefore assume are maybe a little less politically angsty than I am. So just like hearing your comments there about what's happening with Biden and him being incapable of passing any meaningful legislation despite his majority and despite his being president, we're seeing those same trends play out on all facets of progressive policy and not just climate. Um, and then the issues that we're having sort of north of that colonial border here here in Ontario, um, this increasing trend of people feeling not just apathetic about voting uh, or the or the democratic system and how it's sort of failing us, but like how angry people are um, is, I don't know, just something to note and something for us to, to sort of think about and come back to in the coming weeks and months, because um, I don't know, never before have I heard so many folks who I would consider like level-headed superiors to myself like kind of not so jokingly like evoking evoking imagery of guillotines this has been fascinating i mean i, I and i think that increasingly happens when people feel like or see that their votes don't matter you know like when you get to a place here in canada that you can elect a majority government with 16 percent of the vote or in the states where the senate can you know, the Senate Republicans cover about, what is it, like 40% approximately of the population, and the Democrats, the 50 Democrats, is like 60%, meaning that the Republicans just have, like, minority control of our, of our legislatures in both, on both sides of the border has become almost a norm, and that's 
bad. And th- and that people, at least regular folks, like I'm sure political theorists and folks who sort of ruminate on these issues all the time do see paths out of this, but that regular everyday folks such as myself or my parents or my colleagues don't necessarily see a clear route out of this sort of corner that we have gerrymandered ourselves into is, is a scary place to be. But I think what it potentially gives us is this willingness of the everyday person to just like completely break the paradigmatic confines of, of the systems that we've been locked into for the last couple hundred years or decades, however you want to look at it. Like, I do think people are increasingly interested and capable of that sort of, 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 of thinking creatively. And especially I think after, you know, what we've seen with COVID, which was seemingly this huge opportunity to redefine how we're doing stuff so quickly become, you know, your boss yelling you to go back into work and commute for two hours, despite you personally having the experience of the past couple of years, knowing that is a useless experience and, and, and time that is not needed to be spent. Or, you know, the government suddenly has the moment to take care of you and send you $2,000 every month, suddenly deciding that they can't do it again. You know, these are examples of times and places where we've seen the direct examples of what can happen and could be different. And then suddenly, you know, because the, you know, the gears of capitalism have decided that that no longer serves them, start bringing you back into these other realities as if you haven't just experienced an alternative reality that could be possible. Continuing with the climate news, German court officials recently traveled to Peru to investigate investigate the claims made by a Peruvian farmer against the German utility RWE. <clears throat> we mentioned this a couple years ago, I believe. Uh, the farmer is suing the German company for knowingly contributing to climate change and thereby helping to melt the mountain glaciers that are now threatening to flood his land and destroy his house. The lawsuit was rejected in 2015, but was allowed to continue into an evidence phase in 2017 after an appeal. The lawsuit is asking the German utility RWE to help pay to help the town of Juarez deal with climate change. Uh, Christopher Bonaggia writes for the Energy Mix that a 2014 study found that RWE was responsible for 0.47% of historical greenhouse gas emissions. And so the lawsuit asks the company to pay 0.47% of the costs of the local climate program, which would amount to $3.5 million. John Bartlett writes for The Guardian that Chile's government could be on the verge of facing an uprising if it does not rewrite its water laws in the face of its now 13-year-long mega drought. Chile's water code was written in the early 80s during Pinochet's dictatorship, and since then, the country has treated water resources as tradable stocks, allowing private actors to siphon off major waterways and redirect them toward their own ends. It is the only country in the world whose constitution specifically treats water rights as private property. And finally, Deutsche Bank and its subsidiary DWS recently had its offices raided as part of a government investigation into greenwashing. Uh, Prosecutors could end up charging that the company has committed investment fraud by falsely claiming that its investments meet ESG standards. Briefly, I think that second story there about the water rights for me is the one that I'm left with a bit of a take home for, which is like, hey, people in Canada, 
we should be doing everything we can to ensure that water is not privatized. And I know there are some ways where it's happening already. However, I know that even the ways that it's happening now actually are... A few years ago, I was looking into the reasons why it was so cheap to actually take water out of the ground uh, for companies like Nestle in Canada. And it turned out that basically it was an attempt to keep water from actually being a private entity. And so all they were actually charging was for like the the access rights. And that was a way to try to keep it from being a part of an actual private sale. Because once it did, then there's like, then theoretically it could be associated with like the World Trade Organization or international trade. And so we must here as Canada continue our efforts to not let our water be privatized because you're seeing it not just in Chile that's obviously a significantly uh, horrendous example but there are a lot of examples in say California where people's access to water are basically just what you can pull out of the ground in your own land and so if you can't pull water out of your ground you have no access to water whatsoever and these are examples of you water cannot and should not be privatized there are many reasons but we have to own that this 13-year-long mega drought that Chile has been has been tormented by, I assume it's not completely caused by poor water laws that were written in the 80s under Pinochet. I assume it's also a result of something tied to climate and environment. It's primarily a climate thing because it's just a drought. But but it's but there's a specific lake uh, that's been utter been completely made dry. Uh, because water has been redirected because it's private. So like there's one le- there's a lake that was featured in the story which is now there's no water they're calling it a former lake now. Some people don't want to call it that cuz they still want to believe that it might come back, but it has specifically dried because of the of the private uh, privatization. And there was also in 2019 there was major protests in Chile also tied to water. So it's an ongoing political thing, and it does cause droughts in certain areas, but the 13-year-long thing is, is a weather and climate issue. Mm-hmm. But no, Stefan, that's like point well made because, yes, specifically in Canada, we haven't maybe had to deal with the same sort of privatization issues that we've seen in other countries, but we're certainly going to see them increasingly going forward, especially as the states is, well, increasingly doing so poorly when it comes to access to fresh water. Um we constantly hear about what the Ogallala Aquifer, which provides water to millions and millions of people um, in like central and western um, the United States and how it's been drying up and how it hasn't been replenished. Meanwhile, in so-called Canada, north of that colonial border, we do have so much access to fresh water given the Great Lakes and, and um, well, lakes all across the, the, the quote-unquote country. Um, so yeah, so figuring out our our water laws and making sure that they're airtight and that we will always have access to the clean, fresh drinking water that we will need, especially as the states dries up and as we are increasingly plagued by um, drought and wildfire season here is, is going to be important. I hate my father quotes Winston Churchill all the time, and I hate that it's a Winston Churchill quote. At least I think it's Winston Churchill. Either way, something about how wars in the future aren't going to be fought over oil, but over water is unfortunately probably true really sorry that i just quoted winston churchill on our show to be or not to be i think winston churchill penned that one 
as well. Well, you heard it here. Uh, Stefan Hostetter says, keep giving Nestle free water <laughs> and we'll all be okay. That is not what I said. It's the essence of it. It's the substance and the essence of it. It's just the reason. It's the only thing people will hear. It's the only thing I heard. It's the only thing you heard, listener. We are over time and this is spiraling out of control. <laughs> Let's shut it down. We are here with Stephen Thomas, a climate solutions policy analyst with the David Suzuki Foundation, who is also the co-author of Shifting Power, Zero, Emission, Zero Emissions Electricity Across Canada by 2035. Thank you so much for being here, Stephen. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Also, thank you for writing this report, I should say, because you know it's not often uh, that we get too many positive visions for the future. I and mean, we try to bring them, up, bring them up as much as we can in the show, but it is bleak out there, you can say, from time to time. And there's also a level of which, you know, we are consistently told all the difficulties and the hard things that we're sort of to face. And so it's nice to sort of have a report that comes out and says, no, this is possible and give us a way to this. You know, I actually would love this. I love this report as a companion piece to the report that the National Farmers Union put out earlier, I believe it was last year, about how farming sectors could go carbon free by or carbon neutral by 2030. You know, you can start beginning to take this report and that report and add a few more and you can really begin to imagine a very different Canada that is both, you know, more equitable and also, you know, more carbon free. But by way of introduction, what question did you set out to answer with this report? And then, you know, what was your methodology to answer that question? I appreciate that. And that's actually uh, a good lead into how we kind of came together for the direction to this report. It was to be useful for just that. The question that we kind of sought to answer was, can Canada reach 100% zero emissions electricity across Canada by 2035? Just answering whether or not that's even possible. But of course, not only is this a technical and modeling report, but we hope to be awake to the real political and social elements of this too, and making it real and making sure benefits people. So always making sure we have an eye for the reliability, the affordability, and whether or not a pathway like this can be consistent with respecting Indigenous rights and title, creating community benefits, and minimizing impacts. And, and I couldn't agree more that it, it can be pretty bleak out there in terms of what's going on in the landscape of climate change, especially in Canada. And I don't need to tell your listeners that Canada has had a problem doing what it needs to do to reach anywhere near our fair share of avoiding the very worst of climate change, avoiding that, that 1.5 degree threshold in the Paris Agreement. And although not everything that should be taken alongside reports like the one you mentioned from the National Farmers Union, but this is one thing that we can point to that we can do well in Canada. We're, we're ready to, to do this thing and pathways like this being possible, reliable and affordable, we hope can start to put us on a good path. Um, so more than happy to, uh, to dig into the details here. And I guess I should start by saying that your answer to that question was yes. Yes. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we, we did find that, that this kind of pathway, 100% zero emissions electricity in the 10 provinces, is possible. Technically, it's reliable in terms of the electricity being there when and where we need it. 
and it's affordable compared to business as usual pathways. We can't make the problem of energy poverty worse in Canada. So those three things coming together make us say yes to that question. So let's dive in to your six key findings as to, you know, how this would be possible and what you actually found in the report. Sure. So the first thing that's coming out of the report is, of course, that it is possible, as we said, in that not only uh, is a zero emissions grid possible, but uh, a grid that, that has wind and solar electricity as the foundation of the electricity system can happen for 100% zero emissions electricity by 2035. The second is that energy efficiency, energy storage, the existing hydro capacity, and more grid connections between provinces are the other things that come together to make sure that this grid is reliable and flexible. Again, making sure that electricity is there when and where we need it. The third thing is that the pathways in this report are affordable. So they're comparable to the business as usual case, the, the do less case on climate change when it comes to uh, a kind of apples to apples analysis of what it costs to deliver electricity in Canada. We can dig into this more because the, the problem of energy poverty exists today in Canada. We believe that the overall cost of energy will go down for households over time and that the pathway like this in the electricity system is, is comparable, but we have to have progressive rate design and focused energy poverty work happening on top of that too. The fourth thing that we found in our report is that the labor requirement for this is huge that there will be quite a few jobs uh, that, that come along, even from the tight scope of our report. So we found 1.5 million job years over the 25-year period, growing to around 75,000 jobs per year is the need just for building and maintaining all this wind and solar and new electricity lines. We know that's conservative and nowhere near the full picture. That doesn't include things like manufacturing, or any of the jobs that come along with building retrofits, uh, electric car chargers, all this sort of thing, public transit, that's all part of the same picture. But our jobs number is really, really focused on the, the wind and solar piece. Of course, we're doing this, as we mentioned, to have a, a solution to point to when it comes to reducing Canada's emissions. And our report over that same 25-year period, 2025 to 2050, reduces more than 3 billion tons of CO2. That's a big part of the lift to doing what Canada must do to be zero emissions by 2050. It's not everything and it happens in tandem with a lot of other stuff too, but that's of course a crucial part of this. And underlying all of those other things, the sixth point is that through a companion report uh, that we released alongside this shifting power report, we found of course that decarbonizing electricity requires decolonizing power. And that's the title of this companion report that was put together by Dr. Dean Jacobs at Walpole Island First Nation and the folks at Negan Burnside. They interviewed more than a dozen Indigenous clean energy leaders as part of their report to get some good insights and, and priorities and things that we must do and must consider as we move forward in a pathway like this when we're considering Indigenous rights and title, benefits to Indigenous communities, and not repeating the harms that our incumbent energy system has already done. So these things all together are, are what make us feel like there's a lot to dig into for pathways like this. And, and we're feeling um, excited about this being part of the conversation and, and we're excited about getting to work doing this in Canada. Let's dive into that last point first about decolonizing power, because 
I, I would, would not be surprised if a lot of listeners wouldn't entirely know what we mean by that when we talk about it. So what does that look like to you know, decolonize power and how does that feed into this mission of reducing emissions by 2035? So again, I'll, I'll encourage uh, listeners to, if they have the time to, to read the report, Decarbonizing Electricity and Decolonizing Power. And Dean Jacobs and the great folks at Negan Burnside, through their interviews with all of these uh, indigenous clean energy leaders, came up with six principles to, to keep in mind for, again, how we keep indigenous rights and title at the forefront here. So it's things like including indigenous worldviews and indigenous traditional knowledge in how we build out the electricity system, uh, free, fire, free prior and informed consent as a baseline for all of these, these electricity projects. No matter what kind of project it is, of course, it's either taking place on unceded territory or treaty lands. So that's that's got to be a baseline. But it's honoring and supporting the existing leadership of Indigenous communities in this space too. A great organization called Indigenous Clean Energy and folks like Indigenous Climate Action are, are, are clear leaders on this, as are uh, individual nations and communities who've been building renewable energy projects and making this real in terms of the benefits for their communities. So there's there's lots to dig into in the report there. and. And we do encourage folks to to check it out. That's really interesting, in part because, you know, there are many ways in which our power grid, based on the system, would be very, very different. If you look at the numbers, which we'll dive into in a second, you're moving off of a lot of energy that is coming out of, you know, traditional fossil fuels and stuff like that, which require pipelines, et cetera. But one thing that it's also going to require still is a pretty significant uptick in big power lines and other types of infrastructure, which still would have, you know, impacts on people's land, which still would have, you know, these impacts and so still need to sort of be ensured that they are working with the indigenous communities that they will be impacting because, yeah, for all of the ways in which we'll be moving different types of energy around the country, this report does call for still a pretty significant investment in infrastructure in terms of how power gets traveled. Totally. And, and this is a theme that's crucially important for, for Indigenous rights and title, but for communities broadly across Canada, is that folks have to see the benefits in this. We need to make sure that this works for, for communities and works for people. And again, I, I likely don't have to, to tell your listeners that we're, we're used to hearing how the incumbent energy systems, you're mentioning pipelines and other fossil fuel systems, but also clean energy projects um, are regularly opposed by individual First Nations. And we can't propose projects that, that folks can't see themselves in. So that, that's a theme that runs through this where we're talking about a, a national or, or federal policy for getting to zero emissions electricity by 2035, but the implementation and how this actually works and happens is in the provinces and in communities and in territories. So that's true for this conversation and true throughout you. Yeah, for sure. And so maybe we can just give our listeners a snapshot picture of what this looks like. You know, what does the power grid that the report sort of finds would be necessary to decarbonize look like in 2035? So we, I'll say too that the David Suzuki Foundation and our academic modeling partners at the University of Victoria had been working on these pathways for more than three years, trying to get the technical side of it right to make sure that it's reliable and affordable. But our work too in engaging with folks to see what kind of electricity system 
folks want to see or, or folks believe could bring benefits. So, so we scoped things out early on to actually exclude a lot of the energy options that we hear other people talking about. Things like more nuclear electricity, more large hydro, and certainly any new fossil fuels, even with things like carbon capture and storage. Those are, none of those things are included um, in these pathways so that we could focus on the other stuff. Um, and what we see a lot of in, in this pathway is a lot of wind, a lot of solar, uh, energy storage, and the, uh, the kind of grid upgrades that, that make that all possible. So in, in this pathway, we see actually a more than 15 times increase in the amount of wind and solar in Canada compared to what we have today. We, we see this huge increase in wind and solar as part of the overall growth of electricity. And even though things like energy efficiency, building retrofits to make people more comfortable in their homes and spend less on energy, even with all that efficiency work, there's so much new things getting put onto the electricity system as we move away from heating our homes with natural gas to instead using something like a high efficiency heat pump, or as we move away from using gasoline and diesel in our cars to electric vehicles or electric public transit. All that comes with a lot more electricity need, a lot more demand. So there's, there's big changes in the amount of renewables because of the way we put this forward. But Canada's using a lot more electricity in general in, in our scenarios too. I'm curious how y'all solve the intermittency problem in, in this, because I've seen a variety of different proposals as to how one could solve it. There's some people who are just like, you know what? Yes, intermittency, which for those who may not be aware, listen to the show, is the fact that the classic words of like, well, the wind is now, is it always blowing and the sun is it always shining? And like, we get it. That's not an argument. It's a problem to be solved. It's not an argument for why this won't work. It's like being like, well, oil only exists in some places. Yeah, that's also a problem for oil. And we solve that problem pretty well. So it's just a problem to be solved. But there are different beliefs in how to solve it. Some people think, you know what? Let's just build overbuild. Let's just build so much new renewables that, yes, some places the wind won't be blowing, but other places it will be. Or, you know, let's just max out so many solar panels during the day and then wind blows a little harder at night. And so then that can solve the problem. Other people, you know, and other ways of this are doing this are looking at are really more investing in storage, in battery improvements, or in some models, although I've heard that this is falling out of vogue a little bit, even mechanical, physical battery storage, like supporting, you know, you push all the water up the hill at one point in time when you have a lot of energy and let it all come back down to generate new energy when you need it. And that has some benefits, but I've heard that it probably is still a little expensive for the purposes. So I'd be curious, how does your report sort of handle this? What's your method? Yeah. And I think you, you mentioned so many of the solutions there already. And without getting too, too into the weeds, our report was able to, to look at what's happening in Canada every hour of the year in more than 2,000 kind of nodes across the country to see what exactly is happening with who is using electricity and where and how much of it so that we can match that with the available wind and solar and energy storage, existing hydro, that sort of thing. And then along with those things and the increased connections between provinces, that's how we reached reliability. So uh, we build so much wind and solar that it, it's typically windy somewhere or sunny enough somewhere 
to meet the electricity demand. And when it's not, things like energy storage, some backup from that existing hydro capacity in Canada, or borrowing electricity from our neighbors between provinces all comes together to, to kind of meet that reliability every hour through the year. And that's probably a big difference between our report and some of the works that others have done is that kind of ability to dig into it in that kind of detail, particularly on the, the sharing of electricity between provinces. If it's windy in one quarter of Saskatchewan, but there's an electricity need in Northern Alberta, we're able to see that and, and account for it. So, so that's how we went about it. The, your baseline storage, uh, your, sorry, your baseline power here is managed by hydro in this plan. I'm curious that, and, and it, there's huge, huge growth, as you said, in, in wind and solar, especially wind, which I do want to get into. But what I don't see is geothermal, and I'm curious as to why. Yeah, so the, the grid that, that comes to shape up in 2050 in, in this scenario is about 80% wind and solar uh, and about 20% of that existing hydro. So we see very little things like geothermal or even things like offshore wind or tidal. All these are technologies that I think are, are worthwhile uh, to explore, but aren't as developed as the, what we know is possible with wind and solar right now. And that was important for us in how we move forward in this report is all the technologies, all the things that make the scenario like this work are available today. And wind and solar are proven technologies that have been working on the grid in Canada for a decade or more, and are in fact the cheapest form of electricity in history, wind and solar. So as we try to find pathways that are most affordable and most technically ready to go, wind and solar came up over and over and over again as those things that are, that are ready to be deployed right now. But we're not trying to make a value statement on geothermal being bad or, or offshore wind or tidal not being worthwhile. We think those, those things are, are, are worth digging into. They're just not nearly as, as cheap, not yet. And I'll say that too. Um, the, the report, we feel, does a good job of, of like looking into what's happening on the, the, the grid scale, the bulk electricity. But there's a lot of things we couldn't do. Things like the smart charging of electric vehicles or rooftop solar or batteries in people's homes or all the smart ways that people can use electricity, along with some of the technologies we just talked about. Our report wasn't able to dig into that. And we're taking that as good news, actually, because that makes our work really conservative because all of these things that we're talking about, we feel could make a scenario like this even more possible as we kind of dig into things and work on the technologies in the future. But we wanted to say with confidence that the technologies that are ready to go right now can, can help to achieve this. One of the biggest parts of your report, or one of the things I think that stands out to me from your report is the need for that grid connection, which is something that, you know, for, I grew up in Ontario during sort of this time of the Green Energy Act, where one of the big reasons why it failed or it didn't expand as much was because we couldn't see that kind of growth in in connections. You know, there were all these places that wanted to do more renewable energy projects and stuff like that, and they wanted to pass them back and forth, or they wanted to be able to, you had a solar, as you mentioned, like rooftop energy, wanted to be able to give energy back to the grid, and the grid wasn't set up for that system. And so there's a huge amount of 
infrastructure that needs to get built here in terms of grid connections, both I think in small terms, but your part really focuses on coast to coast, I think because of something you mentioned earlier, which is the need for intermittency and to balance that out. But can you talk about A, how big you sort of see that scale out of this infrastructure being and B, why it's so important? So it's so important to to look at at least to explore um, new transmission connections between provinces because it just brings so much value, so much flexibility in how a grid that has a lot of renewables on it can work well. So we we see that value over and over again, as do other studies. But we recognize that that is going to be one of the hardest things to actually get done and get built. This I think picks up on the thread that we were talking about a little bit earlier, where if if these projects don't bring real benefits to communities, if people can't see themselves in it, they can't see how they and their community are benefiting from it, it it won't happen and, and could argue it shouldn't happen. So so we might come up against that with things like like some of these transmission projects. I think a lot of them make good sense too. If we use less transmission, we end up depending on other things that are a little bit more expensive. That still might end up being the right choice for, for communities or for Canada. But as we look at scenarios that use less of these connections between provinces, we'll have to have more batteries, more energy storage, and maybe some of the things we just talked about, like rooftop solar or the smart charging of vehicles and stuff like that can, can fill in those gaps too. Let me dive into the other part of it that I found particularly interesting and particularly surprising, I will say, which is just how much wind power this calls for. You know, normally I feel like when we think about scaling, it's, you sort of imagine, I, at least I personally imagine solar and wind being relatively similar and some of these other ones sort of filtering up, but then be, for those wind bases. But in this plan, it is overwhelmingly wind. Like by 2050, I think it's almost over 50% of the grid, if I'm reading the graph right. What is it about wind power specifically in Canada's wind power specifically that makes you think that there's such an opportunity for wind power and compared to solar or just generally? Yeah, I mean, overwhelmingly, what we saw in this report is is a lot of wind. And we were also surprised to not see quite as much solar. And the short answer for that is that it's it's a matter of cost. So we see about 60% of the electricity in Canada coming from wind alone in 2050, which is a huge change from, from where we're at today. And in terms of the amount of wind turbines, you know, it's an 18-fold increase in, in where we're, we're coming from today. And again, this is one of the, the situations where this is a scenario that works that we put forward. If we feel, uh, you know, in communities and, and across Canada that we would rather see more solar, even though it's slightly more expensive, a scenario like this can, can likely still work. But wind right now and, and for the next uh, 10 or 15 years is very likely to just be cheaper than solar and more available in more places across Canada. There are some places, there's some really good solar resource, but some, some cloudier places uh, across Canada too. So we're seeing just so much wind and solar that I think a lot of folks are, are digging into these numbers and that's, that's a good thing. We, we tried hard to see how far we could go with, with things like wind and solar on the grid here. And we think we have a good story to tell with how possible it is, even with such a change on the landscape. I'll say that, as we talked about earlier, we see so much new wind and solar, not only to replace the fossil fuels on the grid today, but to meet a lot more demand for electricity 
as our demand for energy for transportation and buildings also gets put onto the clean electricity system. Fascinating. I'd be curious to know what the trade-offs become, you know, once you start being, what if this was like 25% solar, but that's weeds that I'm sure we don't have the time to get into. So I'll, I'll move beyond it. But I'm, I'm just imagining some of like sliders that are just like, you know, trying to give you a sense of, or, you know, even imagining some of these other technologies actually really scaling more quickly than we might imagine. Yeah, we, you know, if you could get some geothermal out in BC, for example, and other stuff like that. But yeah, maybe, maybe a better way for me to say that is that, uh, our report is the first of its kind to, to meet this 100% zero emissions electricity system by 2035 and relying so much on wind and solar. But there will certainly be others who, 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 who come along and improve on this work. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing like where, where things get tweaked and how much wind or how much solar, more energy storage or what the community scale can better look like. So we're excited for that, that piece too, because we think as we move forward, it only becomes more possible in Canada. Right. That makes sense. You know, especially given how technology has already improved and all these different types, you know, solar 10, 15 years ago was, you know, where some of these other technologies are now. And now it's, as you said, as you said, the cheapest possible way to get energy, like it is cheaper than keeping coal power online, not even building new coal, just keeping it online. It's officially cheaper to just do that. And so I'm going to throw a curveball question at you and you can pass on it if you like, because I gave you no prep for it, which is, I'm curious what you see the biggest hurdle to this being, because we've seen in the States and a bunch of other places, the fact that solar is the cheapest even than than coal still hasn't actually got all the coal plants offline because jurisdictions have started creating all these weird workarounds to sort of force you to keep buying coal or the way that large utilities have balked at the decisions to move towards renewables just because that's not how they feel like even here in ontario you had the you had different unions fight the Green Energy Act because they saw it as a threat to their workers rather than an opportunity for, as you said, this is a job off making opportunity, but maybe not for this particular union, maybe for another one, and maybe that's going to cause some problems. So I'm curious what you think the biggest you know, hurdle is for, for getting there. I mean, I'll start, as we talk about barriers, I think I'll start by saying I actually am really optimistic that Canada can do this, that we can get this done here. Of all the things happening in terms of climate solutions and what we're saying yes to and what we're saying no to, I think this really is something that we can, can do well, as hard as it's going to be. And, and some of the main hurdles are, as you mentioned, the way that utilities and the way that we regulate electricity right now and how all that works. We're talking about a big change in where we're getting our electricity with more renewables but also in just how our electricity system works, how much of it we share with provinces and how much of it there is as we expand it. So along with the regulatory pieces, uh, the hurdle is that the electricity system in Canada is planned you know, 20, 30, 40 years in advance. The electricity utilities have already made decisions to keep on things like coal and natural gas for decades to come. So as we as we shift to meeting a target like this one for 2035, it will will likely see some resistance there as we have stranded assets and things like fossil fuels on the grid 
won't be. We'll be shutting down those things early. So I think that's all things that we can solve here. And I think that's things that we see being solved in other jurisdictions. But there's no question that this is possible, but a big lift, something that across sectors and across communities, folks are going to have to get together and build in a way that we really haven't seen in terms of the scope and scale of a, of a climate solution like this yet in Canada. What would you say to the unions or the folks working in power about this plan? As a, you know, you mentioned that it is a job creator. You sort of mentioned that, but could you dive into more about how and the ways in which it's an opportunity for these people who have these kind of skills to really, you know, dive into a career and work in this field that is growing? So there's so much opportunity here for good jobs, for, for trades jobs, and for, for jobs in the electricity sector that I think already look familiar to a lot of workers. It's a lot of the electricity systems and connecting lines that, that, that a lot of folks are used to working on. And it's expanding those things and that, that labor force. I'll say too that in the report, along with our quick calculations on how many jobs from things like wind and solar, there's some great commentary by Dr. Jim Stanford, um, who's done some, some great work on the just transition for workers and communities. And he too kind of digs into to this question about not only making sure that, that workers and communities who depend now on, on fossil fuel jobs, that they're made whole or that their retraining programs are available, but that we're going to have a lot of opportunity for, for even more good work here in Canada. But I don't think we should compromise on that either. I think as this grid expands, we need to make sure that the jobs that are available are good, that they're good paying jobs, that folks see these opportunities happening in their communities. So we see the opportunity for that with just how distributed the new wind and solar projects are going to have to be across Canada and in things like building retrofits for homes and efficiency projects too. We see every opportunity for that to be, to be a really good thing, but we need to make sure we get it right. Awesome. And so wrap up question number one, which I did not prepare you for. Do you deal with climate anxiety? And if so, how do you manage it? So I absolutely do deal with, with climate anxiety. How can't you, if you're a part of this work? It's one of the things that, that haunts me and motivates me in, in being a part of this work or trying to be useful to this conversation on climate justice. And how best I deal with it is, is simply trying to do something with people. I, I talk a lot about policies and you know, regulations and, and the kind of big picture solutions. But when, when I feel alive in this work and when I feel like it's possible that we might actually come together and build a future that is, is worth living in and that meets some of these ideas around climate and environmental justice, I actually feel alive when I'm doing that work in communities with people who are, who are making this real for them in their everyday lives. So uh, this is a reminder to, to do more of that <laughs> and to hold each other because it's a lot to hold. So I've had, had such great luck in being a community with such amazing people who can, can hold the emotional side of this along with the parts of this work that are about the advocacy or the policies and all this stuff too. This, this work is about people. It's about relationships. For sure. And uh, thank you for that. Um, so, uh, Rabbit number question two, if there was one takeaway that you'd want people to ensure they left people from this work, what would it be? We talked about a lot of details for how this could work, but I think the bottom line is that this is possible. 100% zero emissions electricity 
everywhere in Canada is possible, it's reliable, and it's affordable. And I think we've got uh, a lot of exciting work to do about how exactly to get that right in each community. But this is not a barrier anymore to ask ourselves a question about whether or not this thing is possible. So I'm really excited to get to the next steps of building this and of, of making this a reality for, for folks in Canada because it's, it's a better world to live in too. It's not only that we're going to avoid the very worst of climate change and, and something that we're all afraid of, hold fear for, but it's, it's, it brings real benefits in terms of having the overall amount that we spend on energy go down over time. We're being more comfortable in our homes with these kind of retrofits. Our health outcomes are much better as we stop burning fossil fuels that are not only are making climate change worse, but killing us as well. So if there's one thing that, that folks might be able to, to walk away from, it's that this is possible and it, it's going to take all of us to, to make it real. Thank you. And so how can folks learn more? How can they find the report? How can they keep up with your work? So this will take all of us and we're excited to work with folks to make this a, a reality across communities and across Canada. So the best way to, to get in touch is on our website. So davidsuzuki.org. And the clean electricity part of that work that we've been talking about today is davidsuzuki.org slash project slash clean dash electricity. Maybe we could put a link in, in the show notes there for, for folks. But that website has all sorts of information about how this is possible in communities, some explainers, some videos, and an action as well, a petition action for, for elected officials in, in supporting this sort of pathway. You can always get a hold of me on Twitter at stevenjwt. And I'm more than happy to be, be part of the conversation about how we make this possible. Thank you so much. And so I'm going to give you a last word. So after I thank you, you'll get a chance to sort of speak directly to our audience with whatever you have to say. We are syndicated across Canada. So imagine yourself speaking to, to the general Canadians. But before I do, thank you so much, Stephen Thomas, the Climate Solutions Policy Analyst with the David Suzuki Foundation and co-author of Shifting Power, Zero Emissions Electricity Across Canada by 2035. Thank you so much for your time. And yeah, take it away. Great. So I'm, I'm just really grateful to be a part of work that does show that Canada can do something to be in line with its fair share of avoiding the very worst of climate change. So I'm always grateful to, to work with folks and to hear your ideas. And I'm excited about that part of it too. And always excited to, to talk about what's possible.